at law school, corporate clerkship recruitment is considered to be especially demanding. Some of the dedicated lawyers who have survived this vicious process are part of an elite squad known as Allens. These are their stories. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Allen's Confidential. Confidential. Today, we're joined by a new partner, Chris Kerrigan from the Disputes and Investigations team and senior overseas practitioner, Francesca Bonner-Evans, also from the Disputes and Investigations team. And of course, like usual, you have your wonderful host, my work wife and creative soulmate, Rose. That's right. And my work wife and creative soulmate, Geneva. That's me. Let's dive in. Welcome to both of you. We always start the podcast with our... Favourite and first question, what is your favourite podcast? I would say, other than, of course, Alan's Confidential. Good. Good. Um, my favourite <laughs> podcast is The Hilo. So if you haven't heard of it, The Hilo is a weekly pop culture and current affairs podcast, and it's by writers Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. And I simply love it because it's a bit like being on a group phone call with my best gal pals from London when I'm on mute. So it's <laughs> just like being at home. How about you, Chris? Well, mine's a bit boring, but it's the Radio 4 Analysis podcast, which looks into you know various economic and political issues in, in depth. Okay. Mm. What kind of economic and political issues? Well, to give you one example of a recent one, um, it, uh, it analysed the impact of climate change and extreme weather uh, on financial institutions and whether they were ready for the potential disruption that might cause. Um, so obviously, I think everyone would be aware that you know climate change is an economic risk and financial institutions are exposed to that. But also, this looked in particular at whether financial institutions um, in the key centres globally would be able to withstand free weather events, things like, you know, Hurricane Sandy. Oh, mm. and would they? <laughs> Will they? Well, the, um, uh, the podcast uh, asserted that they, they, they probably aren't ready uh, and able to adapt. And so that's, that's an area of risk for them. Okay. Mm. Do you think that that's an area that Allens could play a role? Is that something that our clients are looking at, you know, dealing with those risks? Well, perhaps perhaps they should be in more in more detail. I think um, it's not something necessarily that's a legal risk, um, but it, it's an operational risk. And, and we have been assisting clients with how they go about assessing those operational risks. So yeah, it is something we, we could assist clients with. Yeah. Very cool. Now, we noticed that they are both British-produced podcasts. <laughs> and as I'm not sure our listeners can tell, you've both got accents. So both of you have come to Alan's by way of our partner Linklaters. Could you give us a bit of a backstory on how you came to be here? Perhaps I should go first. So I started my career at Linklaters. Um, I know a lot of our listeners will be looking at clerkships, so they may be interested to know that I did a VAC scheme, which is what we call them in the UK. I did that vacation vacation scheme. Sorry, I've become so Aussie. <laughs> um, and I did that. everywhere. <laughs> exactly. I did that back in 2011, but then I started my training contract in 2013. So I did uh, two years as a trainee, including some time in Abu Dhabi, which was pretty fun. And then I settled into disputes. And after two years in disputes, I joined Allens as a secondee. Well, I can say personally, we've been delighted to have you. <laughs> what about you, Chris? What brought you to Sydney? Well, my my wife is from Sydney originally, and we met in London um, and made a decision to move over here a couple of years ago, which has been great. Uh, but I started, like Francesca, as a trainee at Linklaters. I didn't do a VAC scheme at Linklaters. <laughs> surprising. I did VAC schemes elsewhere, um, but I applied for a, um, a position as a trainee at Linklaters, and I just really loved the – I actually really enjoyed the application – 
process and day. I found it a lot more commercial than other law firms. That really appealed to me. So I joined um, I joined Linklaters as a trainee and spent a bit of time in Moscow. I uh, spent two two stints in Moscow during that that time and yeah, moved over here a couple of years ago. Great. And mm. that's gone pretty well because you're now a partner of Alan's, which is exciting. Yes. yes Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yay. <laughs> How are you finding the first year of being a partner? Good. Um, you know, there's a lot of change um, and a bit more responsibility, but, you know, part of the managing associate role uh, is is preparing you for that change. And all of the partners have been very supportive. So you never feel like you're on your own, but it's, yeah, it's exciting. And many of Chris's friends from London would tell you it's a role he's been preparing for for many years <laughs> as he was uh, nicknamed the associate partner. He's not going to thank me for sharing that. <laughs> Why were you named the associate partner, I think Chris? it was actually trainee partner. But, oh, uh, all right, sorry. <laughs> Even earlier. Chris is just very I good. think it was because I wore a tie. Oh, that's yeah, what it is. Yeah. I think we can pin it down that, to that. That yeah. was judged, yeah. Really? They don't normally wear ties at Linklater's? No, actually, if they, they've done away with any... It's casual dress now, yeah. so you can just dress as you would normally, mm. um, business attire, but casual business yeah. attire. And then you obviously need to have a suit in your closet so that should you need to meet a client or head to court at the drop of a hat, you can do. Mm. Mm. I like that. Bring your true self to work. Mm. <laughs> it is the motto of all of these places. It's actually, I think, one of the things that seems the most clear from talking to people who've been at Allen's and at Linklater's that there's a lot of cultural similarities. There's quite a lot of exchange between the two firms. I understand there's two ways that you can go from Allen's to Linklater's or the reverse. There's sort of the structured program and the more ad hoc program. Francesca, could you tell us a bit about the differences between the way those work? Yeah, of course. So particularly if you're a graduate in your second rotation, you might be interested in taking a structured secondment. So you can do a year at Linklater's and that would be your second year of rotation. Um, and as part of that, you would be in London and you would do six months in two different groups. And I know people who've done that and very much enjoyed it. We also have um, people going over to Asia as well as as graduates. So Hong Kong and Singapore. And again, I know that they've very much enjoyed their time. And I think it's something we'll be looking to continue. And then do look on the website if you're at Allen's and you're more senior than a graduate. So associate roles for comments do come up. For example, I have a stat here at my fingertips, which is that 141 Allen's employees have actually been seconded to Linklater's offices. So that's not just London. That is also New York, Milan, Abu Dhabi, Singapore and Hong Kong. So um, these things do come up from time to time. In terms of the more ad hoc ones, as well as them being on a website, there is also the opportunity to just reach out to your partners and have an open conversation if you're looking to, to perhaps spend some time at Linklater's. It's very much supported and encouraged. Um, it kind of broadens your horizons, gives you a really great experience for professional development. So sometimes having a conversation when there isn't already an advert can lead to a secondment. That's how it happened for me. So um, I'm a, a true example. What's the best thing you found about your time in Sydney? It's a really hard question, Rose. <laughs> I really have loved it. I've really enjoyed the Allen's kind of working environment. It's extremely collegiate and collaborative. I've had some fantastic matters and worked with amazing clients, um, including a bit of time at Westpac, which was really interesting. My first ever client secondment, despite going all across the globe on international secondments. <laughs> but a highlight is so hard. I mean, I've done fantastic traveling. So maybe that is the highlight. You know, I've now seen 
all of the states, not all the territories, because there are so many. <laughs> um, and, you know, from kind of Uluru to Margaret River and Rottnest and oh, everywhere is so stunning. And I've just really enjoyed seeing this country. Gosh, you've seen so much more of it than me. And you've been here <laughs> such a fraction of the time. I was just thinking the same. I need mm. to get on a plane domestically. <laughs> yeah. Chris, you've also done secondments in your time at Linklater's. Mm. Can you tell us about some of the things that you've seen, where you've been to? Yeah, sure. So, I, yeah, I think I mentioned I've, I've been to Moscow. I went, I went twice on secondment, once as a trainee. So uh, you do four rotations as a trainee in, at Linklater's and you can spend one or, or indeed two of those overseas. So I chose to go to Moscow for six months and didn't feel... Yeah, I feel felt at the end of it like I wanted to stay longer. I did come back to London, but then I went back as an associate for a period. And then I also spent some time on secondment at the Serious Fraud Office, which is the UK's sort of principal financial crime investigation agency. So I spent a year there as a um, investigative lawyer. Yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. How mm. was your time there at the SFO? Yeah. yeah, it was. It was brilliant. Um, it was totally different to the kind of work you you would do at Linklater's on the defense side. Um, so, you know, working alongside investigators and helping ensure what they were doing was lawful and within their powers, but also helping actually investigate the matter, set the strategy, take investigation steps. So, yeah, it was brilliant. Really enjoyed it. Have you noticed that experience changing the way that you act on the defense side now? Well, I think it gives you some insights, even with Australian authorities, because they operate in a very similar way to to the UK authorities. Um, it gives you some insight into what their concerns are, what their challenges are, um, what they're interested in and why. Um, so that can be helpful when you're trying to explain to clients the reason they are pursuing this point is for this reason, or the reason this is taking so long is because they have to do X, Y, Z. And that, that can be yeah, really helpful guidance for clients. This seems like a good point in which to segue to the kinds of work that you do and you do uh, you know, have a lot of overlap in your practice areas. Can you give us a bit of an overview of the sort of anti-bribery and corruption space and the financial crime space um, that you practice in? Yeah, so my practice is a combination of, I suppose, financial crime and regulatory investigations for clients, as well as helping them try and avoid those outcomes through their compliance systems and processes in those areas. So that might be helping them um, investigate an issue that's been reported internally um, and decide what to do about it, whether they have to report it to an authority, whether they, if they don't have to, whether they nonetheless want to, uh, and, and actually helping them do that if that's where they go, through to if it ends up in court or some kind of re resolution with the authority, helping them with that work. Um, and then the compliance work is you know, looking at their policies and procedures, helping improve those, helping train staff, working on systems, communications to, to try and help the company prevent those issues arising. Yeah, so I don't work exclusively with Chris, but I do often work with him. So a lot of our work would overlap. Um, so it's as he describes, but I can offer some observations, which is I think we are uniquely placed to deal with some of the issues because of coming from the UK, which has been quite a privileged position to be in. You know, I've been treated almost like an expert, which is not really um, true of my position in the UK. <laughs> I'm quite junior still. But essentially, you can see where Australian law is going by looking back home. An example would be, for instance, the introduction of deferred prosecution agreements. So a bill was put um, 
in front of the House of Representatives back in December 2017, and it's still with the Senate. So kind of looking for that to move forward. Hopefully we'll have DPAs in Australia fairly soon. Just for our listeners, can you explain a bit about what DPAs are? Yeah, so as I said, it's a deferred prosecution agreement. So instead of prosecuting criminal activity, which will usually be, for example, foreign bribery, and it's only appropriate for corporates, you will agree to take certain measures, usually in the kind of compliance space, to improve. And instead of being prosecuted, you will continue to be kind of monitored and maintain your dialogue with the prosecutor. Okay, so is it a bit like an enforceable undertaking as we would see in the civil space here? So it's stronger in some respects. Um, So for instance, if you don't continue to meet all of the provisions of the DPA, you can be prosecuted pretty much immediately. And the negotiations can be slightly more fraught, but it is similar Mm. to the EUs that we see here. Yeah. They're only available in the UK and the proposal for Australia for companies. Uh, In the US, actually, they're available for individuals as well. But conceptually, they're similar to enforceable undertakings. And they may come with a fine. That's what we would expect to see happen. Okay. So is this under the Bribery Act? Yeah, 2010. Yeah, well, uh, interestingly, with the uh, they're principally used for bribery offences, but they they can be used for other offences. And um, that's something that hasn't been picked up in the Australian press or commentary. The proposed DPA regime will cover a whole host of offences, um, lots of the Corp- Corporations Act offences that are being considered by ASIC at the moment in relation to conduct that was uncovered or described in the Royal Commission, for example. So it could, conceptually, it can cover a whole range of offences, but it has historically been used a lot for, for foreign bribery and other financial crime. Okay. And so what regulators do you tend to find that you interact with most as part of your work? So we tend to call them regulators and enforcement agencies because <laughs> you might also be dealing with the AFP, so the Australian Federal Police. But we'll also deal with, I mean, Chris has already mentioned ASIC, but Austrac, even the ACCC. ATO. ATO, yeah. State Police. One of the, all of them. <laughs> one of the interesting things about the criminal world is those agencies investigate the matters and when they um, determine they have enough evidence to pursue a prosecution, they hand that evidence to, if it's at the Commonwealth level, the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions and similar process at state level. So you're having to deal with two agencies who may take differing views on on the case. Um, so that's just a, a dynamic that you have to have to deal with. In the UK, they do have that distinction for, for a lot of mm-hmm. cases. But if you take the serious top level financial crime, the serious fraud office where I was on secondment, that's a joint enforcement and prosecutorial agency. So the pros- prosecutors sit in the same agency. So you're dealing with one agency. So another interesting dynamic about that, of course, is that many of our clients have international presence. So Chris earlier described that you might self-disclose or self-report to an agency here because of the kind of international intelligence sharing and also because of the preference of our clients and, of course, the um, the better approach of our clients to be open and transparent with regulators and enforcement agencies. We're often also helping clients to come forward to international um, regulators and enforcement agencies as well. So, for instance, Chris could have a matter where he also has to liaise with the SFO. And then, of course, his experience from the SFO is pretty golden. 
Have you had any matters where you've there's been heaps of jurisdictions? Can you tell us where where they were? Or yeah, I mean, I think when you're dealing with bribery in particular, uh, that will more often than not be international. We have an investigation for a client at the moment which involves the serious fraud office in the UK. It's an Australian client, serious fraud office in the UK. Another jurisdiction in Africa, and there's a dialogue with the Australian authorities as well, uh, and that's pretty normal. The jurisdictions you would most often encounter would be the US because they take a very broad view of their jurisdiction. So usually if you have a US person involved or some US dollars, that would be enough for the US to assert jurisdiction. The UK is pretty common. Uh, and then obviously the other major Asian hubs uh, would be the jurisdictions we most often encounter. And what's great about that is, of course, we're working with our colleagues at Linklaters in all of their different global offices. So um, it's a way in which the Alliance really um, supports each other and um, you continue to build your network. It's really great to work on these kind of international, global matters. Do you find that the regulators in different jurisdictions sort of have a different style or approach or is it fairly consistent globally? Like I know, you know, I studied in America for a little while and they often talked about having a quite aggressive um, litigation. I mean, do you find differences in the regulator there as opposed to here? Yeah, big differences. Um, I think the US, uh, the prosecutorial agencies and the enforcement agencies have a lot more discretion than they would in Australia or the UK and are probably better resourced and have greater powers as well. So um, that all means that there's a lot more interaction and dialogue uh, and expectations on their part and things move quicker than they do in, in this jurisdiction or the UK, for example. And then when you're dealing with other jurisdictions, um, particularly in countries if you take bribery as an example, that will tend to occur in countries that are less economically developed, where the rule of law is less developed. And so um, often you're dealing with agencies which may not be fully politically independent and won't necessarily have the resource to or the experience to deal with the issue that you're coming to them about. So that that presents challenges. Um, and you know, you're forever having to keep all of those authorities at the same level of yeah, information. So you, you can't sort of disclose to one and keep information from another because they, they do talk talk to each other. So um yeah, there's there's very different approaches between between the agencies. It also depends on enforcement priorities as well. And I think even just stepping back and for some of our listeners, a lot of this will be quite new, but they may have observed how there's been a slight change in approach from regulators following the Royal Commission, for instance. So that will be familiar to them. Have you noticed your work change following the Royal Commission? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> There's more work. Um, and uh, I mean, particularly from from ASIC, you know, ASIC is, is uh, taking a, a more uh, aggressive approach, investigating more issues, issuing more compulsory notices. And those notices sort of, you know, compel our clients to produce documents or information within a specified time period. Um, and those requests can be quite um, extensive and uh, with, with tight deadlines. And, you know, there's less scope for discussing and negotiating enforceable undertakings. For example, ASIC has stated quite clearly that its approach will be if it identifies a breach of the law, then it will need to ask itself, why shouldn't that be litigated? Yes, thought, catch you, why not litigate? Yes, <laughs> um, so that doesn't mean every case will be litigated, but they will have to justify to themselves uh, and ultimately their political masters why they haven't 
pursued that case to court. So there'll have to be a compelling reason. Does that mean that more of your work now is winding up in court or will wind up in court? Or are you finding that the regulatory investigation side is a bigger piece of the sort of disputes and investigations work pie? Well, I don't think we haven't seen yet the investigations end up in courts. But if we take you know, ASIC's word, and there's no reason to to not, then I think many of those investigations will end up in court. So, yeah, we do expect more court outcomes. Um, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that if something ends up in court, that it's necessarily going to be fully contested. Many clients will in some instances, accept uh, the allegations uh, or the claim. Um, and then the, there may be you know, some debate over the penalty or there might be debate over certain parts of it. So many more matters will end up in court, but that doesn't necessarily mean you know, full-blown trials where everything's disputed. And I think there's a greater move anyway to kind of self-report. So there's going to be more and more investigations because we're seeing our clients being more open and therefore giving more material to the regulators to look into. And thinking then, I guess, for our listeners, I mean, you guys have such an interesting practice. For people who are just coming into the firm and at the start of their career, I mean, if they want to get involved, what kind of things do you think they should do or people they should speak to? I mean, what would be your advice to them? So we have a lot of this work at the moment and um, it's really a great opportunity for anyone who's interested to come and get involved, um, in particular in disputes and investigations. But there are also other practice groups where this work is popping up. So, for example, competition or TMT. So um, we are working across groups and across offices to really support our clients. We do have a, um, a kind of working group that meets every couple of months to discuss um, financial crime. We recently had a, a local barrister, um, Laura Johnston, pop in and um, give us a really good overview to federal criminal uh, legislation, which is really interesting. So we're kind of talking about the issues and um, getting people hot on the topic so they can come get involved and basically just put your hand up. Francesca, you once gave me some of the best career advice I think I have ever received, <laughs> which was about um, building relationships with people who are more senior than you who can sort of help you move through your career and who you can learn from. And at Allens, we have a structured program where you have a performance coach who, depending on your level, is a partner or a managing associate or a senior associate, and that person looks after you. And I'll never forget you telling me, just go and annoy them, put something that's regular every couple of weeks in their diary. And if you don't use the time that you've booked in with them, then that's fine. But it means that you are always thinking about, well, what's the next step that I'm going to take and making sure that you're being proactive about it. Do you have any other tips about being proactive in your career and how to build your experience? Yeah. So um, that little tip kind of came from um, a partner who was one of my supervisors at Linklaters. He said quite bluntly, and it was really helpful, I must say, no one is as interested in your career as you are. And it is so true. So I just think you have to take the time to really reflect and work out what it is you want to do. Um, look, it's not always possible from the day you walk in as a clerk to know that you want to be a financial crime disputes and investigations lawyer. But taking the opportunities to learn about different things, work out what interests you, maintaining some flexibility, that's really important. Um, but then when you've kind of focused and thought, yeah, that's an area of interest that I'd really like to pursue, take the time to talk to people about how you can get involved, get some practical experience. And then 
seek feedback. So as well as using that time to kind of understand how you can meet future career goals, reflect on your performance. So people take feedback in different ways, but I think it's really helpful to be open to it and try and act on it and and maybe check in again and say, okay, I've been trying to do X, Y, and Z to fulfill what you've explained to me. You know, how do you think I'm going? And the more you engage with people and the more proactive you are, the the better your kind of chances of success. Um, if you care about it enough, it will happen. Do you have any other advice? So the the last question, and we might start wrapping up, but the last question we like to ask, I guess, on this podcast is if you were starting out in your career again, what would be the piece of advice you'd give yourself? So, Chris, do you have any thoughts? Would, would it, it be not not to wear a tie? <laughs> <laughs> no, it would be do wear a tie. Um, I think... That's uh, how to be the trainee partner. <laughs> I think... This certainly applies to the work we do in disputes and investigations, but I think it probably applies to other groups as well, is when you start out and you're the, probably the most junior person on the matter, it can be difficult to work out what, you know, what value can I add? I don't know anything. I'm, you know, the thing you can definitely do is be the person that knows the facts on the matter better than anyone else. And if you do that, you will quickly become an integral member of that team uh, and start to get work above what your level is. Um, so, but, you know, read everything twice, Go look at all the emails you're being copied in on, um, look through the documents that other people don't have time to go through and, and you'll be really valued on that team. And I think showing um, really good attention to detail as well really earns trust. Such a small thing, but if someone has to check everything you're doing before it can go out thoroughly, then um, it adds to the time and people may just be minded to do it themselves. Whereas if you do a great job first time, people start to give you more advanced work. Well, thank you both for sharing your insights. I mean, really interesting to hear about your different experiences, both at um, Linklaters and here at Allen. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. And we hope that everyone listening will tune in again for another episode of Allen's Confidential.